you know, my brain is, I like dad jokes, that kind of stuff. So um, what I wanted to stand up and say is, it's really good to see both of you here. There is always talk about, should we just combine services on a big holiday weekend? And, um, but that kind of means that people are used to a particular schedule and we throw a wrench in it. So we didn't do that this year. We'll see what happens next year. But, and just so you know, we have not forgotten about the grads. We're going to end our service with that celebration. So um, let me pray. And then I'll give you a little background on this book because we're going to be in the book of Hebrews throughout the summer. And uh, just some things in our heads so that we know, we know how, to, how to listen to it and who it is that's writing and who he's writing to. Let's pray. Lord, simply put, show us, show us what you want us to see. Tell us what you want us to hear. And give us what you want us to have. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Hebrews uh, traditionally is known as an epistle, but it's not really an epistle. Um, it doesn't really fit those criteria. So if you think of epistles, um, Paul most, uh, Paul's the author of about two-thirds of the books in the New Testament. And he's usually writing to a particular church, like to the church in Thessalonica. He introduces himself, he greets them, and he tells them who he's, who he's writing to. Um, there's no such thing in the book of, uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, and, and traditionally, it's known... Uh, Long time ago, we thought, okay, well, Paul must have written it. Um, but we're 99% sure it wasn't Paul because of how this person writes, what he writes, and uh, who he's writing to. So, but that kind of begs the question, well, who wrote, who wrote it? Because in order to make it into the New Testament as an author, you need to, this is one of the criteria. There are others, but there, this is one of them, and it's a big one. You either have to be an apostle so someone who had an eyewitness encounter with Jesus, and not just like as he was walking along, but, but they, the, the apostles lived and, and, and walked with and learned from Jesus. He directly discipled them. And then you have Paul, who had an encounter, and the Son of God, Jesus, uh, revealed to him all that he had done. So you either have to be an apostle, or you have to be a first-generation disciple of an apostle. You have to have had direct knowledge from someone who had direct knowledge. That, those are the criteria. So we don't know who wrote it exactly, but they've got it narrowed down to a couple. Um, so an example of the disciple of an apostle, Mark was a disciple of Peter, and um, uh, Luke was a disciple of Paul, the both authors of New Testament books. We're pretty sure, we don't know for sure, but we're pretty sure it's either Apollos and you, Paul talked about Apollos, you know, like some claim to be a follower of Paul, some of Apollos, some of others. Um, the only thing that matters is the gospel and Jesus himself were followers of Jesus. But Apollos was known as a great preacher. He spent time learning from both Paul and Peter and others. Uh, Acts 18 tells us that he was an eloquent, mighty, uh, he was eloquent, mighty in scriptures, fervent in spirit, uh, and, and instructed in the way of the Lord. Um, I think it's him because, and I'll tell you a little bit more about this book in a second, um, but I'll find out when I get there, and so will you. Um, the other option, the most, you know, of the, of the, of the possibilities, the other one is Barnabas. Um, Barnabas uh, was a co-traveler with Paul for a lot of time. They got, they got, they, they had a little scuffle, and then they, but they came back together at the end. Um, I don't, we don't, we don't know for sure, but it, it's important that we know that the early church and all church, uh, the, the church and all the scholars since then see the book of Hebrews as a second generation 
an apostle, a disciple of an apostle. It was written in about mid-60s AD. We know it's not any later than that uh, because there's no speaking of or about the fall of Rome. We're pretty sure that the the initial uh, hearers or people that received this letter um, are Jewish people in Rome. And there's some warnings to them and there's some reminders to them. And those are good reminders for us too. So a couple of things. Um, One, this is, it's not an epistle. This is a sermon. And you can tell by how the guy opens it up. Uh, way more eloquent than I am. And, and, and if we read this whole thing, you'd be here for hours. Um, so we won't do it all just one reading of a sermon. But we will read the whole first chapter here in a moment. Um, and and what, basically what it boils down to is this. The author talks about older things and current things or good things and better things. So Hebrews can really be considered the book of better things. And we're going to read this first paragraph, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter. But this first paragraph, we could spend the summer on the first paragraph alone. We won't, but we could. It is that packed with doctrine, with reminders, with proclamation of who Jesus is, and all, all the, the, from creation to now. Um, but please listen to these things. There's kind of some compare and contrast. In the past versus in these days, to our forefathers versus to us, through the prophets versus by his son, and in various ways versus in one way through his son. That's, in, that's implied, but it's very clear that that's what the author's saying. Now, before we read one other thing, he's, he's talking about throughout this book, um, Jesus, the son, is better than angels, better than prophets, better than the priesthood, better than the law, better than, better than, better than, because the Jewish people that he's writing to were missing some things. They were, they were pining for some things. Um, there were, these were Hebrew people, so Jewish people, who, who were converts to Christianity. And so when they were converted to Christianity, they lost or missed out on, especially at this time in Rome, they were no longer considered Jewish. They're now considered this other thing, Christian. And so the seven feasts of the year, they didn't get to celebrate anymore. The, all the family gatherings, all the, the, the kids that they went to Hebrew shul with, um, the people that were in their synagogue, they don't get to be in relationship with anymore. And they're kind of started to wonder, like, why can't we have Jesus and all these good things too? And, and, and they're all good things. The law is good. Angels are good. The priesthood is good. The sacrificial system was good, but they're not the best things. And so if you've ever had, uh, like, let's say you have extended family traditions around Christmas, and you do that for 20, 30, 40 years, and then you move to the West Coast, and you miss those things. You pine for those days. You remember the taste of the coffee cake. You remember the smell of the bacon in the morning. Whatever it is that your family does, um, and, and you miss it, you kind of want it back. They wanted back that which they had lost. And one of the things that they had lost is this idea that, that, the, that God in various ways at various times sent angels to, to communicate to God's people what God wanted them to hear. And so the, the, the author starts off with the lesser of the, of the good things. He starts off there and then he builds throughout the book. So it reads like this. This first paragraph is just amazing. In the past, in the past, 
God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his likeness, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is superior to theirs. So I got to clear up one thing because some people get caught up in this. There's a, a the, the, the author here starts to make an argument and it's, it's not a diatribe. It's not, but it was, it's how they used to do things oratorily when they were giving speeches. Um, they would set up an argument, they would ask a question, and then they would use Old Testament scripture to prove their point. And the expectation would be that people, as he builds in this next little thing, that people are going to go, oh yeah, yeah. And then might be, have a couple of charismatics out there going, preach it brother, amen. So he, he sees it build, but there's this first one that he picks. He says, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today you have, I have become your father. Some people get wonked out by that because they think, okay, Jesus, Jesus has always been, but, Jesus, but God the father says, today you have become, I have become your father. How does he have a, no beginning and a beginning? You know, today this relationship starts. This is hard to remember, but Jesus is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, has no beginning. In fact, right here in that first paragraph, it tells us that, that all things are under him and that he sustains the world by his powerful word. You woke up this morning because Jesus, the living and incarnate word of God said, awaken. But sometimes we forget the distinction between the Son who's co-eternal, no beginning, no end, and him being in flesh as the incarnate deity, the God-man, that's when, when, when God says, today I become your father, that is the person, the Messiah, the, the work that you're going to do while you're on earth. So he even calls him God the Father, calls Jesus or the Son God later on in this passage. But to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship him. In speaking of angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. This is the Father talking about the Son. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will roll, it, roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then this last verse is a setup for, next, for, for, the, for the next chapter. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This is, there's a ton here. But the original hearers of or readers of this were Judaizing. They were, they were Christians, but they wanted to go back to the angels 
to the law, to the priesthood, to the feasts, to the festivals, to their families. And the author of Hebrews is saying, those are good things. They're good things. But they're not the best things. Here's an example. You guys know what I mean. I mean this jokingly. I was a CRC ordained pastor for many years. So don't hear me wrong. It's just what it's called. Do you guys know what a Christian Reformed garage is? Okay, drains, hot and water, hot and cold water, so you can wash your car on Sunday with your garage door down and no one notices. I have a Christian Reformed garage. And last week, not this past Thursday, but the Thursday before that, my wife came out in the evening and said, Trent, could you, could you come out to the garage? That's not usually where I go to get in trouble. But she comes out and goes, is that mold? And she opened the cabinet, and yeah, there's black mold in there. And then I opened the cabinet next to it. So there's a long cabinet, a cabinet up here, and another one here. They're all not built in, but hung on the wall. And mold, mold, please no mold, mold, up to about here. So sprayed it down with bleach, wiped it off, sprayed it down with bleach, let it dry on its own. Then the next day, day off, take all the stuff out of the, you know, everything's out of the cabinets, take the cabinets down, cut them up so they'll fit in bags because you don't want the mold to spread anywhere, and then cut out the drywall and and where where it's come up and uh, kill the mold that's back there. I had to replumb because it was a little drip from a faucet behind the wall that created all the mold, and da-da-da. So every day, two days off, Two Saturday afternoons and all evenings in between, my garage is right back to the way it was a week and a half ago. And it was good that I know how to do that. I've done drywall, I've done plumbing, I've done mold, whatever, eradication before. I don't like it, but it's good that I knew how to do it, and now our garage is back. But it would have been better if someone who had all those skills showed up that day and said, you know what, I got this. The cost is on me, the, um, the, the labor's on me, and I'll have it ready for you in two days. That would have been better. It's good that I can do it. It would have been better if, it was the, if, if the cost came to someone else. That's what it's more, but that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Those are good things, but it's better if it's Jesus. And we all have a tendency to do this. We, 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 we all remember the good old days. And for all of us, those are different good old days. For you guys, the good old days, I don't know when they are. It was pre-COVID probably. For me, it's, I remember the bicentennial. You guys remember the bicentennial, some of you? When everything was red, white, and blue. Everything was patriotic. Everything was wonderful. And man, were we proud to be Americans. And, and you look back and you think, man, why can't it be that way again? Why can't we, instead of being ashamed, why can't we be rejoicing? You know, the 4th of July is coming up. What, what, would it, what if there was no advertising that said how terrible we were? Okay, we kind of pine for the good old days. We pine for what used to be, the nostalgic things. And we look at the world today and we go, it's just it's getting worse. It's getting worse. So, of course it's getting worse. Think back to the Old Testament. The original, and this is, this is all this author's doing. He's going back and showing them how, how, it, how it was and how it's better now because of who Jesus is. 
and what he's done for you. He provided for the purification of sins, and now he sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven where all things are under his feet. We, we look back. We want to look back. It's good to look back. The, the Adam and Eve in the garden, and then right before the flood, everyone was doing every, only evil. They did what was right in their own eyes, but they only were doing evil. And then after the flood, when they, they grew in population again, and they built a tower to get themselves to God, and God's, you know what? Enough. I'm done with that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scramble your language, send you all over the world, because when you cooperate, and you don't have God in mind, you can do terrible and evil things. We look back at the cycle of apostasy and the judges and how they, they do good and they do terrible. They do good, they do terrible. And God over and over and over again intervenes and gives them an opportunity to repent. It's good to look back, but you can't only look back. We can't only look back, for those of us in our 50s, look back at 1776, the year I turned 10 years old. It's when your memory starts to really form and solidify. You start being able to have rational and abstract thinking. And, and it was just a, a phenomenal time in my life. Was, my parents were still together and all that kind of stuff, but my parents aren't together anymore. And those were good times, but, but they're not the best of times. The Hebrews, the audience, they wanted to go back why would we go back? We can't go back. We can only move forward. So let me hear another metaphor, and this will break down too, but let me give you another metaphor. I want to make sure we leave time for the, for the, for the grads. So um, I know that there's construction on 196, and I know that, there, that Byron Road's torn up too. Not much fun. Trying to get to GR. The other day, I think we had to go uh, Chicago Drive to 32nd to 196, to M6 just to get to my brother's house. And it should just be two roads, but it's just crazy. So let's just take that and we go mid-October when it's supposed to be done. Or Thanksgiving. Let's say you have family and grand... Who's ever driven to Grand Rapids, first of all? Okay, I know this feels a little Baptist, right? Put your hand up in the air. Um, so you know your way. GPS or no, you know how to get there. So let's say Thanksgiving, you've got family in Grand Rapids and you're on your way there, but this time you're going to do it different. You're going to put one of those sun shields up in your windshield, and you're going to navigate by the side and rearview mirror only. You going to get there? Yeah, I might. I'm, I'm with you. I don't think I would make it, but you might. But you're going to, you're going to either end up in it. You might end up in a ditch. You might bang into somebody else, and you, you're certainly going to hit a guardrail sooner or later because you can't predict where you're going by looking at where you've been. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to them, and that's what the author of Hebrews is saying to us. Angels are good. They're God's messengers. I believe, I'm 99% sure, that I had an angel experience when I was in high school. My wife had one when she was in a very depressed state. It is good things. I'll never forget it. But should I worship an angel? Or should I use that as information? Check the rearview mirror. It's good to look back and see what God has done. It's good to look back and see the waypoints, the GPS of God, the waypoints that God has shown so I can be reasonably certain if this is the direction he's been taking history and humanity that he wants me to continue this way. But what I can do is settle for second things. We do this. We do this with politics. There are people in this church that will not talk to other people in this church, both believers in Christ, because they, because they land on the different side of an aisle in the body politic. If our relationships are dictated by our political party, then we're settling for second-tier things or maybe third-tier things and not top-tier things. 
if we are identified in Christ, by Christ, for Christ, and through Christ, then all those other things are just what they are, secondary things. We do this with money. We do this with relationships. We do this with, 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 with where we work. We do this with where we go. We do this with what we buy. What if we did with our faith what the author of Hebrews is asking the Hebrews to remember? What if we decided that every single moment of every single day, the most important thing is what's going to dictate how I behave? And we know we have it here, but experientially, do we live in such a way that Jesus is actually God, that all things are under his authority? That means all of politics, not just spiritual things, fleshly things, all things are under his authority. If he walked in the, in the, in the room right now and we were sure it was him, would we be able, would we run to him and embrace him or would we fall down and go, please don't look at me. Oh God, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. Would, do we still have things to be ashamed of? And if we do, it's because we're setting second or third or fourth or fifth things as if they're first things. One more example. Forgiveness. We receive it. We're good at that. But who is it that when you think of them inside, you're like, Mm-mm. someone cheated on you. Someone betrayed you. Someone treated you as if their needs were far more, far more important than yours. Someone abused you. And oh, yeah, I'll forgive them, but I can't yet. Can't is Latin for won't, by the way. When they confess it, I'll forgive them. Or when they deserve it, I'll forgive them. And in the meantime, oh, they live rent-free in my head. I'm paying the rent, I'm paying the cable bill, I'm paying the air conditioning bill next week when it's 90 degrees, I'm paying, I'm paying, I'm paying. Well, see, forgiveness is called forgiveness because it's for giving. It's not forgetting. It's what I give to someone else, and it costs me twice. It costs me when I'm hurt by somebody else, but it also costs me when I choose to not hold, them against, hold it against them anymore because I want justice, but Jesus says, mm-mm, justice is mine, it's not yours. So why bring that up in the midst of this? Because when I don't forgive someone who sinned against me, I'm giving them power over my life that only God deserves. They dictate how I feel. They sometimes dictate where I go. They, they dictate how I behave. They, they decide in my own mind who I am and what I do. Who should have that kind of authority in my life? Jesus. And Jesus alone. It's okay to look back. It's okay to use your mirrors. They're for reference. But they should inform us, not form us. What should form us is the path set before us. We're told that in Hebrews. We're told that, that, that to, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's the people that have come before us that have been faithful to God. We should fix our eyes on Jesus He's the one who authored and perfected our faith. We should run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Who marked it out? Jesus. So the author to the book of, to, the author to the Hebrew people that the book of Hebrews is about, the sermon says to them, don't go back. The good old days weren't as good as you think. You fix your eyes on Jesus and you go where he calls you to go. 
Don't go back. And I will say to you, as the person that God, through his, not through my ordination, but through God's ordaining power, his providential care, he picked me to be the one to stand in front of you on May 28, 2023. And if the author to the, of the book of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrew people who were Christian and kind of wanted to go back, he's saying, don't do it. I'm saying to you, on God's behalf, don't do it. Don't look back. You can look back. Those are good things. They're good experiences. But folks, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to, he, he marked the race out for us. We have to run with perseverance. We have to be ready because I don't know what's coming, but I can look back. My rearview mirrors, they do inform me. They tell me what has happened in the past, that people do only what's evil in their own sight or only what's good in their own sight, but it's always evil. They call evil good and good evil. Sound familiar? So what's Jesus going to do? I don't know. But I do know this. Historically, God intervenes at a certain point in history where those who are called fall to their knees and ask for forgiveness. They repent. And those who are not lose their power and lose their voice in culture. When's, when's there going to be a next great awakening? When are people going to be called? How far does it have to go before God intervenes? How far does it have to go before God lets us go into exile like the, like the Israelites did in Babylon? I don't know. But I can, because of where we've been, because of the great cloud of witnesses, because of that rear view mirror and the side mirror, I know that he's not done. I know his character. I know what he's done in the past. And so I should look forward, waiting for him to do it in the future. It might be that he comes back and it's all over. But I'm not sure that God's done with us yet. I'm not sure that he doesn't want to call us back at least one more time as a people, Christians, and those who don't yet know that God is good. Will we be ready to embrace it when he does? The only way to be sure is as far as it depends on me, as far as it depends on you, Jesus is better than all of it. He's a better ruler. He's a better savior. He's a better God than anything else. And here's the thing. You're part of his family. He calls you brother and sister. He walks with you. He talks with you. He knows you. He loves you. And he wants what's best for you. So don't settle for second, third, fourth, and fifth most important things. They're good, but they're not best. This is a book of better things, and the better things are always for, from, and through Jesus. I pray you'll consider that. Let's pray together. Lord, this weekend is a weekend where we celebrate the freedoms that we have that we have because other people shed their blood. And the eternal freedom that we have in you, the one who provided for the purification from sin was by the spilling of blood. You sacrificed for us so that we can live forever in you. Lord, we ask that we never become like the, the audience of the book of Hebrews, that we're never wanting to go back to good things, but instead always move forward.
for the best things, for the best one, you, Jesus. Amen.